Lord, we ask for your help this morning. Uh, Lord, we need your help in understanding your word and in applying your word to our particular situation and our particular struggles with sin or our particular pursuit of Christ-likeness. And so, Lord, allow us to be humble and teachable. Allow me as your messenger simply to be your mouthpiece, Lord, that I would reflect your truth um, accurately and carefully, and, Lord, that you then would be glorified by what is said and done this morning. And, Lord, we want to be conformed to you. And, Lord, as a church, we want to be people who are pursuing you in a way that reflects the gospel at work in us and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, give us freedom today. Lord, help us, uh, Lord, as we now uh, enter into this time of feasting on your word. We ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, being Father's Day, uh, I think there's actually an appropriateness to the book of 1 Thessalonians because the, the tone of this letter is really a, a, a pastor, uh, fatherly tone for people that are loved, even as children. Uh, you know, Paul's writing this letter, having been to the city of Thessalonica and having had to leave quickly. And if you remember, Paul, Silas, and Timothy together were going on this journey. They were uh, anticipating going in one direction to Bithynia, and yet God directed them to go to Macedonia, virgin territory where the gospel hadn't gone. And they went in that area, and in the process of that, they went into Philippi and started to proclaim God's truth in the synagogue, and, and people started to believe, and as a result, uh, Paul ends up in jail, and um, there's some great things that God did just to demonstrate his power and his purposes, and eventually they left Philippi, and they went to Thessalonica. And we're told in Acts chapter 17 that, they were, uh, that Paul was ministering in the synagogue for three Sundays, three Sabbaths, I should say, and as he, as he did that, he was taking them to the word of God. And if you remember, his, his, his methodology was he reasoned from the scriptures. And then he explained them. And he sought to persuade the Jews who were there uh, from the scriptures that they prove that Jesus is the Christ. That means that he is the Messiah, the one that they were waiting for. And that was his methodology. And as a result, we're told in that text that many Jews believed, many God-fearing Greeks, that means those who were Greeks who were now attending the synagogue, um, believed. And there were a number of leading women. We can assume in that that they were uh, Greek women who were in positions of leadership, probably merchants or involved in some way, shape, or form in the leadership of that city. And um, they also came to faith in Christ. And as a result of all that, this church is established and Paul and Silas and Timothy uh, stay there long enough. And then we get that more from 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians that there are things that Paul is reflecting on that must have taken time for him to establish with them. So it wasn't just three weeks of ministry. It was probably longer than that. But the, 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 we, we realize that as a result of the ministry there, where there was no church, having gone into the synagogue and opened up the scriptures, now there is a church of gathered believers. And, of course, when that happens, persecution is right around the corner. And there were you know, angry Jews who um, gathered a mob and uh, were looking to, to get rid of, or actually hold accountable Paul, Silas, and Timothy, but they were able to get out of town and they left and went to Berea, if you remember. And it was kind of like a quick get out of Dodge kind of a, uh, uh, an exit. And um, although they got to Berea and they were able to minister the word there, the persecution followed them to Berea. But the persecution remained in Thessalonica. And actually we're told in Acts 17 that uh, because Paul, Silas, and, and Timothy weren't there, they, they picked on a guy by the name of Jason, and it says a few of the brothers, and they took them to the authorities and accused them of, uh, of working with these people that were upsetting the, the, the city, um, turning it upside down. So you have to understand there's this, there's this kind of like short period of time of ministry, and then we have to leave. 
And so Paul now is, is you know, as a result of having to leave, is concerned and, and, and wondering what's going on with this church. He's, he and his, his co-laborers have, have, have uh, sort of laid the foundation as, as fathers kind of pouring into that church and now having gone are wondering what's going on. Are they doing okay? Have they been overrun? You know, uh, they're suffering some kind of affliction of suffering, and they hadn't heard anything. So Paul actually sends Timothy back to find out what's going on. Timothy returns, and what he, what he shares with Paul is good news. And it's good news about a church that is alive, that is thriving, and that is having an impact in the region. And Paul is now reflecting about those realities as he's beginning his letter. And so one of the things that we can say, just in the big picture, is that the church in Thessalonica at the time of this writing was a model church. I mean, they were doing things well. And we will get to, in a few later, uh, later sections, Paul saying, I know that you know this, and I know that you're doing this, but keep on doing it. All right? And you must, even though things are going well, you must keep at it. You must keep working at it. But now as he begins this letter, Paul is, is reflecting on this church and how powerfully and effectively the gospel was at work in and through them. And so he's thankful and he identifies three areas where they are truly healthy. Now, I know Mark Dever has the corner on nine marks of a healthy church, um, but he probably hasn't thought about three marks of a healthy church, and that is what we are going to focus on this morning. That really flows out of this text. There actually might be a fourth that I will bring up later at the end, but there are three marks now of a healthy church that I want to draw your attention to as he begins this, this letter, and he's just really identifying um, their legacy, their reputation, what they are known for, what he has seen in them. And the first one I want us to notice here, I'm calling, um, they are an active church, an active church. Look at verses two and three. It says, we give thanks to God always for you, uh, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father the work of faith uh, and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And here I want to draw your attention to this, that, that, that Paul begins as he is remembering, uh, and he, it, this remembering is an opportunity to be thankful. And I, I want you to notice the, the flow of his, his kind of thinking process here. He says, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God and Father your work of faith. So there's a sense in which as he's remembering, as reflecting on the church and the things that he's heard, that moves in them to be thankful. And then that thankfulness then moves him further on to say, I want to pray for you. Yesterday, as I was packing, getting myself ready for my trip to Bolivia, um, uh, you know, it's always nice to have something going on in the background that you enjoy, and it's World Cup season. Yay, right? And so I noticed that, that Nigeria uh, was playing Croatia. And uh, so I, I, I put it on there, and I was watching it. And, and uh, as I'm watching Nigeria, I'm thinking to myself, Peter Joshua. And who's Peter Joshua? Well, again, God's providence. A few years ago, my wife and I went to England on our 25th anniversary, and while we were there, we wanted to stop and, and, and spend time in one of the local churches there. And we went to Highbury Baptist Church, and we sat down in, in, in the church. It's not a, not a large facility, a number of chairs, probably less than what we have lined up here. And, and we sat down, and sitting down next to my wife was this, this African young man, um, dressed really well, and uh, when I say really well, he had a suit and tie on, okay? Um, and, uh, and we just got a talk, started talking with him and found out that he was attending London Theological Seminary. He was from Nigeria, and his desire was to go back to Nigeria and plant a church. And uh, he ended up, um, we were thinking about potentially him coming here and getting um, his internship done, but that didn't work out. He ended up going to uh, Conrad Mwebe's church. Is that Zambia? I'm not sure exactly where that is. Um, but he went to his church and did his internship there, and he's going now to Nigeria to plant a church. Now, you have to understand, 
um, his concern is that all the churches he knows in the town where he's at in Nigeria are, are all um, prosperity gospel churches. They might have an orthodox name, but what's going on inside is prosperity gospel because it, it has just overrun that region. So he's going back to plant a church very, very much like Gateway. And um, so as I'm watching this thing and I see Nigeria, guess what? I remember Peter Joshua. And I was like, you know what? God's providence and just, just the fact that I'm remembering Peter Joshua and I even know about this scenario. And as I'm packing, I'm, I'm praying for Peter Joshua. You see how, how this works? And this is what Paul is doing. He's remembering. And as he remembers, he's thankful. And as he's thankful, he's like, you know what? God, I want to praise you and I want to I go to you in prayer. I want to hold these people up before you. And, and um, so, you know, a couple of things just to think, you know, even as we were gathered this morning praying over J.D. and Thea, uh, the, the body of Christ is made up of relationships, isn't it? And just think about the people that have been involved in, in your life, in your experience within the body of Christ and um, the preciousness of those relationships and, and the desire to cultivate those relationships. And so there's a, there's a little bit of a pattern here, something that we can think about. When you remember people from the past, pray for them. Um, you guys remember Austin? All right, and you're like, hmm, okay. You know, it's like, boom, Austin, I haven't thought about him for a while. If you don't know who Austin was, he was a single man who was here for about a year and a half and came to our church and, and just jumped right in, was, was involved, just, a, just a, a great guy. And, you know, you remember, it's like, you know what? As you remember, rejoice over that relationship and pray. It's just a great, just simple, basic uh, paradigm for us to think about. So when was the last time you said to someone, something triggered my mind to think about you, and I want you to know how thankful I am for you, and as a result, I've been praying for you. Can you imagine being on the receiving end of that? Would that not be an encouragement to you? And I think it's just a reminder, as you're thinking, and whatever comes into your mind, whatever trigger is there, brings that person to, to, to remembrance, you know what? Take time to pray for them. All right? And so that's what's going on here with Paul as he's, as he's beginning uh, to unfold this, this, this letter. He's, he's letting them know how much he loves them and is praying for them as he remembers them. Now, here's the reason for his thankfulness. Here's the, you might want to say, the meat and potatoes as to why he is thankful. Um, what it, you know, the question is, what, it, what is it that, they, that Paul and Silas and Timothy remember? Because Paul might be writing this, but he's writing it on behalf of all three of them. Well, there's three words, faith, love, and hope. Now, these are well-known words, right? They, they come out at Christmas time. They're, they're on these, you know, you can get little decals you can put on your walls. They're on all sorts of different things, and they're key to the Christian faith. Um, faith, love, and hope are really, really important qualities. And again, they're, they're talked about throughout Scripture, but oftentimes among people, they're talked about in the abstract um, but this is not the, the picture that we have here. There's a story told of a contractor who, who loved children. And he, he laid down a, a sidewalk one day and finished it in the afternoon and came back the next day. And when he came back the next day, he found these little footprints in the cement. And he was really, really angry. And so one of his coworkers came up to him and said, I thought you loved children. He says, I do. Uh, I, I love them in the abstract, but not in the concrete. <laughs> okay. Um, so you'll get to know me if you haven't known me before. Um, you know, the, the, the point here is this. We can look at words like faith, love, and hope, and they're just kind of like words on a page. They're, they're, they're biblical words, they're theological words, and they're just, kind of, they're just kind of there. And it's good that they're there. It's good that we embrace them, but we want to we realize here that Paul is going to move these words uh, and, and these qualities from the abstract and move them into the concrete. Because we, we don't just want words on a page that we're saying, yeah, we love faith, love, and hope. What does that mean? You can walk into a church that doesn't believe in the Bible, doesn't believe Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and they will use words like faith, love, and hope. And they'll be void of biblical truth. They'll be void of gospel packaging. And so Paul 
really unpacks them for us, shows us. And here's, here's how I would put it. First of all, he just identifies the fact that, that, be, be, um, that we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, uh, we are then reoriented. And so that this faith, love, and, and hope, if you, if you go back to the verse, uh, is all rooted in the fact that we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's, there's a change that has taken place. There's a reorientation before the grace of God regenerated our hearts, um, we were disoriented. We were blind. We were confused. We were aimless. But now, because of Christ, because of the gospel, we have faith, love, and hope. We have a, a new orientation that flows out of the gospel. In faith, we have a, an upward look. It moves us from trusting ourselves and mankind to trusting the wisdom of God. In love, we have an outward look. It moves us from loving self and mankind and the attractions of this world to, to loving God and loving others. In, in hope, we have an, an onward look. We, we are looking and hoping not in ourselves and in our portfolio and the things that, that we are going to do to make sure that the future is good. We're putting our hope in something far more certain and far more concrete, and that is in Jesus Christ himself. And as it's fleshed out in this context, in his return. So there's this upward, around, and forward look. Listen to John Stott. John Stott says the new birth means little or nothing if it does not pull us out of our fallen introversion and redirect us toward God, Christ, and our fellow human beings. And I think he's, he's absolutely right. So in Christ we are reoriented, but also in Christ we are productive. And here's where, here's where the meat now comes onto these words. Paul gives life to these roots of faith, love, and hope in this way. He says, first of all, uh, we possess an active faith. This is a work of faith. So faith is taking God at his word and doing it. Work is the, the active work that flows out of that faith. So it's faith that produces work. So it's, a, it's not just a faith by itself. It's a faith that does something and is evident because it does Things. There's a fruit that is born then out of this faith. And so Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And that's referring back to not grace, but referring back to faith. It is God who's given you the faith. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, yes, there is faith, but that faith doesn't come by good works. The faith is what births out good works. So this is active. And just look at the, the title of the section. It's a, an active church. This is, this is faith now that is active. It's doing something. Okay. Secondly, we possess a, a laboring love, a laboring love. This is, is the word agape, which I like to translate very simply, very colloquially, as simply love without strings attached. In other words, you're doing, you're doing loving acts without expecting anything in return. Um, but the labor here is this, this arduous, wearying toil involving sweat and fatigue. So this is not just kind of like doing a token thing to be seen or to kind of get the monkey off your back. This is genuine service. This is genuine labor for, uh, for others that is born out of this, this love. And so there's a weariness that comes from this. And so their love, uh, like a root, bore fruit in passionate grinding, wearying love, uh, or labor, I should say, for the glory of God. And of course, we, we see that in the example of the Thessalonian church. Look at verse nine. It says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve 
the living and true God. There's this service now that flowed out of this, this new life that they had in Christ. So there's this active faith, there's this laboring love, and then finally there's this, this patient hope. And, and, and hope certainly is the, is the anticipation of what God has promised, but it's an anticipation with joy um, with what God has promised. In other words, I, I have hope. This is, has this is given me confidence. This has given me joy. This has given me perspective. And as a result, I am patient. I'm steadfast. I'm able to kind of not panic over things. I'm able to bear things and endure things. Why? Because I have an anchor in the hope of Christ's return. So it's active, it's it's moving. And so the result of all this, friends, is that that we have here a church that is committed. All right? And and you know, sometimes you you, you look at some things through through a microscope and and, uh, you want to see what's going on. Maybe you see some cells on on, on, on some, you know, under a microscope. And and if they're all just kind of like sitting there doing nothing, then you're kind of saying, well, are they alive? But when you look down, you see the cells, and they're moving around. What are you saying? There's activity going on. There's something happening here. And that's, what's, that's, what the, that's the picture we have, so to speak. It's not just there's faith, love, and hope, but it's faith, love, and hope that is moving around, that is active, that is committed to live out of the gospel and to live for the glory of God with this backdrop of the return of Christ. So they are an active church committed to God. Secondly, they are an authentic church chosen by God. An authentic church chosen by God. In other words, they're the real deal. This is a genuine article. This is authentic faith, authentic conversion. Let's just kind of walk through the text here. It says that they, first of all, um, they are loved by God. Right? And, and, and the fact that they are loved by God is, 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 is not saying that they weren't loved by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. I'm, I'm certain that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had great affection for them and loved them dearly, but they were the agents of God's love in coming with the gospel. So God in his love pursued them with the truth of the gospel. And we'll, we will see that they ultimately turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So they were loved by God, first of all. Secondly, they were chosen by God. I know what, when we get to a text like this, sometimes people just go like, Ay, I don't know if I like this language. And we have, our, we have our kind of frameworks that we're wrestling with. But can I just let you just look at Scripture, just let it settle in. It's saying here, that God chose you. Let me just paint a picture here. Who was it that stirred the heart of Paul to not go to Bithynia, but to go to Macedonia? Was it Paul? I mean, did Paul say, you know what? We're not gonna go to Bithynia, guys. We're gonna go to Macedonia. So let's go on over to Macedonia because I think there are people in Thessalonica that are gonna be converted. All I have to go in there is share the gospel and use some of these tools and techniques and they will get saved. Is that what happened? Absolutely not. All right, Paul, Silas, and Timothy had a plan. It was a good plan. It was a right plan. They were ministering to the churches, but God had other plans, and he took them from their plans and said, this is what I want you to do, and they're like, okay, if this is what you want, we're gonna go do it. And what I'm trying to get at here is that the fact that they were even in Thessalonica is what? Is God's Work. It was God that took them there. It was God that then gave them the ability to speak the word of God. And as a result, as they speak the word of God in the, in the synagogue, people now are getting saved. And friends, that's, that's really helpful for us to see. Because I think sometimes when we, we read a, a passage like this where it says, you know, he has chosen you, it just rubs us the wrong way as if, I don't have any ability to choose him. Because, you know, we're, we're, we, we, like, we like our own autonomy. We like to be the ones who make decisions. I mean, this is America. We make decisions here, right? We cast votes, and, and we are the ones who have the right to make a decision. No one's going to make a decision for me because I have the right to make that on my own. And we bring that kind of thinking to the text of God's word, and uh, we kind of brush aside things that are very, very clear here. 
But friends, throughout Scripture, we have this kind of language that says it is God who chose you. Now, he, he, he didn't choose you because you chose him. It doesn't work that way. That wouldn't really be him choosing you at all. <laughs> and, and, and you, left yourself, according to Scripture, wouldn't choose him. You would want your own self to be the God of your life. Left to yourself, you're blind, you're lost, you're wandering in darkness, only concerned with your selfish desires and satisfying them. And it is God who breaks into your world. Now, you might have a story to tell. There might be a journey that you went on where things were happening and you, were, you would say, you know, I was seeking God. And I, I understand that. I was kind of in a journey like that too. But even that seeking is something that was placed in you by God. Now, friends, this is all really helpful. Why is it helpful? Because there's great comfort and joy in knowing that God has chosen you. Because, you know what, if, if, if I'm choosing um, you know, I used to like McDonald's a lot, but I don't anymore. I would choose something different. That's the way we are. We're fickle. Sometimes we like this, sometimes we like that. With God, his electing choice, which is what's going on here, is consistent, is perfect, is complete, is right. Now, don't, don't fight against this thing. I'm just asking you to say, let, let Scripture speak, and you can wrestle with how that all kind of plays out. But don't deny the fact that it's there. In fact, um, you might want to, you know, to, to turn even to 2 Thessalonians, just a few pages over, and just read what it says there. Here's Paul speaking, chapter 2, and verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and behalf of the truth. Now, just turn that around and say, well, Thessalonian church, you're, you, to, you need to be commended because you know what? You were the first ones in that region who decided to follow me and to breathe in the Holy Spirit. It's like, it doesn't work that way. But we like to be the ones to say, we made a choice. And you know, in the process of the gospel, from a human perspective, you know what? You did affirm. You did respond. You did say, yes. But even that is an expression of God at work in you. Okay? Now, you may have to wrestle with that. And we're not going to divide over that. But I want to encourage you to read it in the text. It's there. Here's what he's speaking about. And he's not just talking about a church collective. He's talking about individuals that are part of the church. And you can even go to Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, which I think is probably the classic passage. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What? I can't comprehend that. Either Paul's wrong, I'm wrong, or God's right. And I think I know where I want to land the plane on that one. Before the foundation of the world, God had already, in his wisdom, exercised his, his divine call, his, his draw of my life to come humbly before him and humble myself and say, you are my Lord and Savior. And all of that as a result of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Now, let the truth of that settle in and just remind yourself that God sent Paul and Silas to, and Timothy to Macedonia to, to carry that out. They were chosen by God. Here's the third thing, though. They were loved, chosen, but ultimately they were changed by God. And we see that now in verses 5 and following. And notice, first of all, the, the, the words of the gospel. So the gospel, it says, uh, you know, w w that was brought to the Thessalonians didn't come in the form of words only. So the gospel is not just words. Now, the gospel is words. And I want to I be careful here because there are some people that say, you know what, you know, preach the gospel and, 
and maybe it sometimes you can use words. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. That's, that's, that's not a biblical instruction at all. The point here is this, that the gospel is not just words, leave it alone. Paul is saying, I came with words, but notice what else he says, and with power. So we have the power then of the gospel. And I think what he's talking about is the activity of the Holy Spirit that works through the preaching and teaching and the unpacking and explaining of the word of God. When that light bulb went on in your heart, that spiritual awakening took place, that wasn't simply because you were convinced of something, some argument that someone made. That, that was a, a Holy Spirit, God dynamic that was taking place in your heart where you were like, <gasps> life is happening. There was a powerful event that took place then. And it is ongoing because the Holy Spirit lives through the word to speak to us. But then it says, and with full conviction. In other words, there's a certainty, there's, there's a passion, there's, a, there's a, a way that I'm going to live now that flows out of this gospel that was embraced. It came with words, it came with power, it came with conviction. And I want to just back up a little. I want to say, you know, the, this whole thing of words, you know, you know share the gospel and occasionally use words. The point there is I look at my life and show the gospel through my life. But you can only show the gospel through your life so much. I mean, I can only cut your, the grass of my neighbor's yard out of love to show them Christ so much. How, what am I going to do? Share the, am I going to cut like the lawn in the shape of a cross somehow? And they can say, oh, it's because of Christ in you that you're doing this. It has to be connected with words. So the, the, certainly the gospel goes out with words, but it goes also out with a, with a life that backs it up. And we don't say, then, well, let's remove words and let's just do good things because this all gets murky and muddy and it's just kind of like good deeds without the gospel. You understand that? So there, there needs to be both going on there. And verse 6 tells us that you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. And you know what, what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. In other words, not only were they changed uh, through the word, the power, and conviction of the gospel, but this, this change was as a result of the example that was set before them by these who had come to share the gospel. They had followed the, the example of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, um, who served them uh, with this gospel. And so these first 10 verses really communicate this radical change of behavior, of values, and pursuits among these former Jews and Gentiles. And the expression that, that ha, we've, we've kind of moved away from because it's become somewhat watered down, but I think is an appropriate expression, is, is you know, they were born again. There was just a radical change that took place in them because they were chosen, because God loved them, and ultimately this, this change resulted. They, they weren't just turning over a new leaf. They were completely reborn by the Holy Spirit. Now, friends, there's some implications now of that gospel in their lives that I think are, are worth us bringing out because we see it, again, throughout this letter. I just want to briefly draw your attention to the fact that this, 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 the, the gospel uh, resulted in them becoming new creatures in Christ Jesus. And so what was new in them? And you have a list there of four things that were new about these Thessalonian people. They had a new foundation, and that's Christ. And again, Matthew, Matthew 7, verse 24 through 27, you know the story. It's about the... Um, um, the man who built his house on the rock, right? And, 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 or the man who built his house in the sand. Let me just read it. Everyone then who hears the words of mine does and does them will be like a, a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And again, that rock is hearing the words and doing them. But, Verse 26, if everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Again, the rains come and the floods come and the winds blow and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So they hear the words of Jesus, they believe the words of Jesus, 
and they were changed by the Holy Spirit, so much so that they are now in Christ. He is their foundation. And that should be true of all of us who are followers of Christ. We have a new foundation. Secondly, they had a new family. Again, a word that is used throughout this letter is the word brothers. And that is, that is not just referring to the men. That's referring to the church family. It's the brotherhood. It's an expression that encompasses both male and female. This is the church. And so throughout this letter, you'll notice, he'll, he'll say, now, brothers, I know that you know this, but boom, brothers, brothers, brothers. 20 times we have it in this, this letter so there's this new family, there's this new beloved brethren, this new community that is formed. It's called the church. And they are learning how to trust one another, how to work together, how to submit to one another, how to serve one another, and how to serve together. So they are the brethren and they need each other, they edify each other, they're gonna comfort each other. There's a new focus, they turn to God from idols to serve God. So they, they were learning about God, but they were also seeking to pursue God. And finally, they had this new, this new future. You know, when, when, you, when you're not a follower of Christ, your future is, I really don't know. But when you embrace Christ, when God comes in and rescues you and brings you into his family, you have an awareness about the future. You have a certainty about the prospect of heaven. And so this is, this is fresh, this is new, and it is an anchor, friend. It, it, it is a friend for you. And let me just paint a picture here. This is one of the beautiful things about Thessalonians. We often talk about living our lives out of the gospel. It is the gospel that saved you. It is the gospel that changes you. It is the gospel that gives you that firm foundation, and we need that. And so we talk about living out of the gospel, right? But in Thessalonians, the emphasis really is on the Lord's return, <laughs> Okay, and because at the end of each chapter, there's this reference to the return of the Lord, to the return of the Lord. And so there's this, there's this prospect, there's this hope in the Lord's return. And, and here we are between the gospel where Christ came into, you know, and, 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 and brought new life into us. And so we, we live out of that and we are, we are nurtured along because of that. But then we also live with the prospect of heaven that is pulling us. So we have the gospel pushing us. We have the, we have the hope of heaven pulling us while we're living our lives here on this earth. You get that? So both of these are beautiful truths that, that help us in, in our walk with him to get perspective and to live for his glory. So there's this authentic church that's been chosen and changed by God. You look at your life. Is, is that what you see? Has God chosen you? Are you changing We can go back even to the first point. Are you committed in what you're doing in such a way that you're active? And then uh, what we find here is this is kind of giving birth now. So we have this chosen aspect. We have this committed aspect. And it's kind of like one thing is growing out of the other. And now we have what I'm calling an aggressive church, an aggressive church. Now, by aggressive, I do not mean obnoxious. Because oftentimes we can think of someone who's aggressive as really obnoxious, right? Um, but what I'm saying here is that they took seriously their responsibility and opportunity to serve God by pressing into the culture and into the context all around them as best they could and to do it with the gospel. So in that sense, they were aggressive and intentionally so. Now, I want you to notice um, their ministry. There's three words that, that I think help identify what was going on in them. And we've already touched on one, but I think it's, this is where kind of it grows out of, all right, you've been converted, you've been uh, now, <clears throat> you've been initially changed, but now what's happening is that they are imitators. So the contagious nature of their new life in Christ certainly began um, as they began to imitate those who were their spiritual leaders, their spiritual fathers in this case. Verse six, and you became imitators of us. Who's he talking about? Paul, Silas, and Timothy. 
and of our Lord. For you receive the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So, so Paul is saying, listen, you, you followed in affliction, just like we have followed in affliction. You have experienced suffering as a result of your faith, just like we have experienced suffering as a result of our faith. And so they're not only the imitators, but that word can also mean that they are um, followers as well as disciples of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And certainly if you remember John's, uh, or say Acts 17, we, we saw the beginnings of that persecution with Jason and the other brothers that were now taken to the, the city authorities. So they were beginning to experience that, right? They were imitators, but they also were imitating the way in which they lived. They were imitating the, the belief structures and the things that, were, that they were taught by Paul, Silas, and Timothy along the way, that their life should be rooted in the gospel, and that as a result, they shouldn't be shaken by the affliction or the persecution they're going through. Now, here's a question for you. Who are you trying to imitate? Who are you trying to follow? Now, you might be tempted to give the Sunday school answer. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I understand that's a good answer, and it's a right answer, but there is a place for you to be following other godly men and women who have gone on before you. We see that model for us. Paul's talking about it here. Paul actually says, be imitators of me. And that's what he says. It's, it's there in, in God's word. Be imitators of me. Now we understand that we're talking about imitating someone who is a fallen sinful creature but there are things about that person that you're going to hold on to. So just kind of paint the picture. And let me, let me put this in a context where I can say it this way. Imagine you have the great privilege and opportunity of leading someone to faith. You've, 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 you've you know, demonstrated the gospel maybe over time, over coffee. Maybe you've walked through reading the Bible together and someone comes to faith. Who do you think they're looking to to help guide them? You say, okay, well now you're a believer just follow Christ. Is that what happens? No. We're, we're, we're told now that you continue on investing in them. And what are they doing? They're going to be looking to you. They're going to be looking at your faith. They're going to be looking at how you make decisions. They're going to be thinking about how you process the things that they're facing through the grid of God's word. They're wanting to learn from you. And there's a sense in which when people are, are newly saved, that they borrow someone else's faith. And hear what I'm having to say. They're going to lean on you and say, well, what does, what does the Bible say about X, Y, and Z? And you're going to say, well, hey, let me show you. This is what the Bible says about X, Y, and Z. They're going to say, oh, okay, and then they're going to do that. But hopefully the goal is they're going to come to a place where someone's going to ask them the question, well, what do you about X, Y, and Z? And they're going to say, well, let me show you what the Scripture says because they have grown along the way. And that is natural then for people who are new believers to lean on other people to be learners and to be discipled to the point that they are now steadily walking with God and mature, but still growing. And so there's a rightful place to say, who have you been imitating? Who have been your examples? Who have been the people that you have been seeking to follow? So who do you look to as a human example of what it means to be like Christ? Who has had or who is presently having an impact on your life? Secondly, not only the imitators, but they were also examples. So having been imitators, they move now into this next phase of ministry of being examples, receiving the gospel, imitating the Lord and Paul and the others, but now examples. And interestingly enough, it says here both regionally and nationally. That's what it means when it says, now you became examples to all the believers in Macedonia, that's regionally, and then in Achaia would be nationally. Okay, so there is this, there is this, this, this reputation now that is taking place. There's, a, there's an impression that's going on here. This word example is the Greek word tupos, which literally means to make an impression. And, and it's, it's the word that is used to describe someone who has a seal making an impression on wax. Okay, 
So it's the idea of this is what is left as a result. I'm, I'm impressing upon these people. So here is this, I want to say, impressive ministry going on. Not in the principle that we usually think about, right? But impressive meaning an example kind of ministry. This is what they were doing. They were an example to those that were around them. They were being used by God to literally shape the lives of those around them in their city, in their region, in their nation. You say, wow, I didn't realize the Thessalonian church was like this, this, you know, gifted. Well, this is a reflection of what they were doing, but it doesn't mean that they're the only ones that were doing it or could do it. This is something that we're all called to be doing. We're all called to be imitators of godly people as well as the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately. But we're all, all called to be people who would leave an impression you know, years, years ago, when I was growing up in England, um, I had a teacher by the name of Gary Palmer. And he was my, we call it design and technology teacher. And he taught wood shop, and metal shop, and plastics. We actually had three different classes. And then design and technology was when you brought it all together and they said, make this product or make this thing. You can use any of those elements to do it. It's up to you. Of course, you took drafting class, so you get to draw it out, you had to build it, and all that kind of stuff. So that's what he taught. So you spent a lot of time with, with this guy, and he was, he was, he was a great, great teacher. Um, his, his biggest flaw was his classroom discipline. He was just one of those guys that just could not keep order in the classroom. And you know, sometimes he would get frustrated because we knew he couldn't keep order in the classroom, and to... Teenage boys in particular, that's like, bring it on, all right? We'll have some fun here. And yet, he would get to the point where he'd, he'd stop the class and he would not yell at us, but he would speak to us in kind of a, a passionate appeal. And everyone in that room, without a, without a doubt, everyone in that room loved and respected him. You see, he was the, he was the teacher that would, you know, open his doors at, at at lunchtime. He was the teacher after school would stay because maybe you wanted to make something. He was the teacher that made himself available on the weekend and he would take, you know, a number of boys to go do this. We, skateboarding was big in that time and he would take us to go skateboarding in different places and parks. He would stay there and, and, and build things and stuff with us and sometimes we'd just be walking uh, someplace and he'd drive by and stop the car and pick us up and take us on and and you know what we always knew? We always knew that, that beyond the classroom, he cared about us, okay? And, and so I, I wrote an article um, in tribute to him on my blog. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie um, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Um, if you haven't, great movie. Um, and I just kind of identified him as my Mr. Chips, if that makes any sense. And uh, I didn't know if he was alive. I didn't know if he'd ever read it. I didn't, and, and like about a year ago, um, I was on Facebook. There was a special Facebook page for my old school, and there was someone on there that says, oh, yeah, yeah, he lives right across the street, and I'll have him read it and all this kind of stuff. So it's great. He was able to read it and that kind of stuff. And, and I made a link to the article, and all these students started to respond to say, yes, Mr. Palmer was the greatest teacher. Mr. Palmer was the greatest teacher. And it had nothing to do with grades had everything to do with the impact that he had on individuals who were attending the school at that point in time because he treated them in such a way that they were people and they were individuals and that they meant something. And I would like to, I would like to think that there's a little bit of Mr. Palmer that has impacted me. Now, he's not a believer. But it doesn't mean that he couldn't have an impact. But can you imagine being a believer and having an impact? And maybe your impact could be because you're a believer, you're shaping other people. So who are you impacting? Who are you impacting with the gospel? By your words, by your faith, by your life. And what impact are you having? Then the next word is not in the text, but it's a reflection of 
I think, the text, because there's a report, there's a reputation going out there. And so I'm using the word here, ambassadors, because I think what they were doing is actually going out with the word of God. Let's just read verse 8, because it says here, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. That, that word literally means to, to trumpet aloud. So these people were known as proclaimers of the word of God, proclaimers of the gospel in that region. That was their reputation. Hey, the church in Thessalonica, they are proclaiming the truth of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all the region knew them. All those who were, might want to say, converts that interacted with Paul outside of Thessalonica that, that he rubbed shoulders with while he was in Corinth writing this letter, has he heard about them? Oh, yeah, we know the Thessalonian church. They have trumpeted the gospel in that region. And not only that, it says, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So this is going on in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also Everywhere, So you could, you could actually think of this in the terms of in the city, in the region, in the nation, but also internationally. Here's this one church started by God through Paul in the context of a synagogue that now is impacting that known world. Has that reputation. Now, friends, that's, that's pretty powerful stuff. I mean, that's quite a legacy for this church. And this church isn't that old. We're just talking about maybe a year and a half, two years old. And here they are having this kind of legacy, this kind of reputation. I'll be more specific with the reputation here. We'll notice in verses 9 through following what the reputation exactly is. And here's what Paul says, that the people that they were, he was rubbing shoulders with or he was interacting with, this is the they themselves, those who are the, the product uh, or the, the fruit of the Thessalonian ministry, and they're reporting it back to Paul. Here's what they're saying. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how uh, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So first of all, they turned to God from idols. This is true repentance, friends. This is a, this is a, a 180 turn. This is saying I am worshiping an idol and then gospel comes and now I'm no longer worshiping that idol. I have turned to God. I have pushed away. I have, I have run away. I have gotten rid of the idolatry. There is only one God and, and, and Jesus is his name, and that is the result then of the gospel. This is the radical change that took place. This is their testimony. You know, Psalm 115 sums up the impotency of idols in contrast to the, the, uh, the God of heaven who does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Just listen. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust them. Idolatry is empty. It is a man-made system of religion. There's only one true God. And they turn to him out of their idolatry. Today we are still worshiping idols. Maybe not figurines unless you go in like into a Thai restaurant or something like that, right? You'll see them around. But I'm talking here about the kind of idols that, that are around us. Materialism. Just the, the, the wanting of more and more stuff. Selfishness work, where I am the idol. What my desires are is the idol. Something I struggle with, and that's body, health, and beauty, exercise, diet, cosmetics, all that kind of stuff can become an idol. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner can become an idol, right? Um, children can be an idol. Boyfriends, girlfriends can be an idol. Uh-huh. You can be an idol too. Yeah. 
Parents can be idols. Cars, houses, cabins, sports, except for soccer, movies, technology can be idols. Some things are just part of life that are just always going to be there. Right? Idolatry, friends, is real. And, and, and an idol is an idol when it takes place of Christ, when we are making decisions because of it rather than allowing Christ to be the one who fashions our thinking and decision-making, when our, 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 it fuels us to act irresponsibly. Um, so then idols are things that just that we constantly through life are, are having to realize we have and that we're putting off and, and again, pursuing Christ. So there's, they're turning to God from idols. Secondly, they're serving this is, the, this is another way of simply saying they were living their lives in order to please God. They were serving. They were living out of the gospel. They were living in such a way that, that honored him, that, that, that demonstrated this new life that they had. It was out of this love that they served. And third, um, waiting. And friends, of course, we know that, that through this gospel or this, this letter, um, there is this this trilogy of faith, love, and hope working to, to, together. And it's a reminder that we have this hope in Christ. Now, I just want to just quickly draw our attention then um, to just what it says at the end here and then just some quick concluding thoughts. Now, just notice how this, how this ends. It says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from what? From the wrath to come. Now, friends, let's not be afraid of what Scripture says. And let's hold the thought there about the wrath of God to a little bit, because I want to just draw our attention now to some concluding thoughts. Number one, four words that describe the gospel at work in our lives. And I think these might say four marks then of a healthy church would be this, that we are chosen, that we are changing, that we are committed, and that we're contagious. Are, are people catching what you're about? Well, you might want to go back down the, you know, or up, up the scale, so to speak, and say, am I chosen? You know, have, I, have I truly been converted? Is that a reality of my life? And then am I changing? Because I think that change is, is, is an evidence of the fruit of that choice, of that conversion. And you kind of you move out from there and you say, okay, if that is true, if I'm chosen and changing, then I'm, I'm committed. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, I'm kind of like standing there angry and committed. It means that I'm, I'm now doing what God wants me to do. I'm living out of that. I've changed and, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm exercising faith. I'm, I'm laboring with love. I'm, I'm standing with that, that hope of certainty. And so I'm, I'm happy to serve God. And as such, my life with Christ is contagious. Now, I'm not saying that people are knocking on your door and emailing you and everyone's like, you know, getting saved on your property. I'm not talking about that. But is there, is there, is there movement? Is there joy? Is there, is there life going on in you? Because for the Thessalonians, there was life. And it was marked by these things. And so you look at it personally, we have to say also at Gateway, are these things true? Is this Rod's church is this Gateway's church or is this God's church? I think we start by saying it is God that birthed this church. If that is not the case, let's just pack up. This is his place. And he's going to be the one who guides us and shapes us through his word. All right? And then we say, well, are we changing? Are we growing? Are we, are we actually becoming more and more like Jesus? And if that is true, how is that affecting our, our, our commitments and our, our life choices and the behaviors and choices that we make? And then is that contagious? Are other people coming in and saying, man, there's something going on here. We see some, some difference. This is not just kind of like surface Christianity. These are real people. This is the real deal. They're authentic and I don't mean that by this soupy authenticity we often find happening in, in pulpits. I'm talking about just real, genuine, walking with God authenticity. 
We can talk about the hardships and the suffering and, and the struggles we're going through and glorify God with it. So that's the first contemplation. Secondly, I want you to think about this, two words that must be in balance. Orthodoxy, having a right belief, and orthopraxy, having a right behavior. You know, why would I say that? Because it's one thing to say, well, I'm going to say I agree with the doctrinal statement at Gateway. I agree with what God's word says. Yes, absolutely. I'll sign on the dotted line. And then there will be people on the other side that say, well, just tell me what I need to do, how I need to conform, how I need to live. If I can just live within the framework of what you are expecting of me, then I will do that. Those are two extremes. We need to be orthodox in our beliefs and in our practice, we need to be consistent that our practice is flowing out of our beliefs. So it's not enough just to simply say, well, I believe these truths to be true. I believe in faith. I believe in hope. I believe in love. Okay, but if, if all you're going to do is say, I believe, then it's just orthodoxy. You might say, yeah, you're orthodox, but there's no life. That's going on with that orthodoxy. So both of these words have to, have to work together. You see that? Yeah. You, you, you say, yeah, this is what I see God says. This is what he says is true. And so I'm going to live my life now. My behavior, my, my activity is going to flow out of what I believe. And my practice then is going to be connected to what I believe to be true. Because God says it. And so, friends, we've got to be careful of just kind of being on the on either end of those things, but allowing those things to work together. And of course, you have to have right orthodoxy before your orthopraxy can actually be, uh, be a reflection of it because we have to know what to do before we actually do it. Okay? And then I want to conclude with one word, and that takes us back to this whole concept at the end of the passage. This one beautiful word, right? Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I just... Just pause and think about that word. I mean, it's, it's a word that finds its roots in the Old Testament. How many times did God provide Israel with a deliverer? And how many times after the deliverer came did they just go back to their ways? And those, of course, were all temporary deliverers, all pointing to the one true deliverer. And, and just, again, re remind yourself of what it means to be a deliverer in this context. What is Jesus delivering us from? He's delivering us from the wrath of God. Oh, don't talk about all that nasty, heavy stuff, Pastor Rod. I cannot not talk about it. Number one, because it's in the text. Number two, because if I don't, we don't understand the gospel. We don't understand what deliverance is. So all the weight of, of the, the punishment and the judgment that you deserve for your sin is being poured out and will be poured out on you. Only two places where this takes place. It's either on your shoulders or on someone else's shoulders. And if you are not a follower of Christ, one day you will stand before God and you will be judged based on your sin. Not sins but on your sinful condition, nature. Why? Because he's not going to condemn you then because what? Scripture says you're already condemned. And so you're condemned and he will pour his wrath on you. And people don't like this. Oh, maybe I can somehow hide and I can get away from his wrath. And, you know, we got this kind of Hollywood mentality. No, 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 no. You're not going to be able to get away at all. His wrath will be poured out. But here's the good news. There's someone who took your wrath on his shoulders. And his name is Jesus. And so when he stepped on that cross, yes, man put him there, but he willfully placed him there, himself there for a purpose, to, to hang on that cross and not just die, but to bear the weight of the sin of the world and the wrath of the Father being poured down on him, which is justice, which is judgment, which is love. Because in doing that, he was also sacrificing his son. He delivered us. 
delivered. It's a small word, but a powerful word, packed and pregnant with meaning. God's wrath, I deserve. God's wrath, he received. Now I am forgiven. Now I am free. Now I long for his return because he is my deliverer. He is my savior. And this is a church that was marked by these realities, resting in the gospel that delivers. Lord, help us today. We know that the Thessalonian church was not perfect. It would be wrong of us to somehow approach them and say, here's the perfect picture of the perfect church because we know that's not true. And yet Paul is is giving them uh, an awareness, an encouragement. Um, He's giving them... uh, accolades that are are rightfully given because they have lived so admirably out of your gospel, but in such a way, Lord, that is rooted in your gospel, and it's not about them, it's about you. And Lord, if we could just catch some of the things that we have seen in this text to be not only central in our own lives personally, but Lord, even here at Gateway, that these would be characteristics that we would want to be true about about our church, Lord, about your church. Lord, help us never to get over the fact that you chose us and you breathed life into us and that all was the result of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to, to always be seeking to grow and change as we learn more about our sinfulness, as we learn more about your, your beauty. But Lord, may it not even stop there. May it result in in, in life being applied um, that is flowing out of your truth. And then, Lord, may it not even stop there. May it it go on, Lord, even in in, in relationships that we have in other places, Lord, whether that's in Bolivia, Ukraine, and who knows what might happen in Vienna. Lord, you are an amazing God, and you do amazing things. The most amazing thing is the fact that you died for us. And not just that you died and as in dying, but Lord, that you, in your death, took upon yourself our sin and bore the wrath of the Father. What love is that, Lord? We are amazed at your kindness and your goodness to us. Encourage us, strengthen us, Lord. Help us to be the kind of people you've called us to be. In your name.